Well, it is a privilege to open up God's Word with you on our 65th Sunday here at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach. 65 weeks we've been doing this now, just over a year and a quarter. Uh, Lord willing, we're just getting started here at this church. Um, but uh, I had the privilege before I became the pastor here 65 weeks ago, I had the privilege of being a youth pastor which I did for roughly 624 Sundays. Now that's about 12 years of working with high school students. And you think, why would anyone want to work with high schoolers for 12 years? The average youth pastor doesn't last two years. Why would someone do it for 12 years? Well, I just, I loved them. That's why I did it. And uh, I got to see God do a lot of great things in the lives of young men and women. And if you've ever done youth ministry, if you've ever read about it, studied it, maybe served in it, there's a statistic that you come across sooner or later, which is that somewhere, depending on which survey they've done, and I don't know how they exactly get these statistics, but it seems to pan out that somewhere between 60 and 80% of the young people who go to church in their junior high and high school years, by the time they graduate college or by the time they're that age, they have nothing to do with the church. Okay, so let me just clarify in case that's new news to you. That means two out of three, basically, are leaving. They're falling away. And I hated that stat. I took that personally because that to me wasn't a statistic. That was the faces of people that I had grown to know and love. It was souls to me. In fact, we used to do this thing uh, when the students would graduate from the high school ministry. We'd print up a picture of them, black and white, and we'd have them sign it with a Sharpie, and we'd put it up in my office. And pretty soon my office was looking like a pizza parlor or like a burger place where all these famous people ate there, and they signed a picture, right? And I had all these students and all these faces and all these signatures, and eventually I had to take all the pictures down because I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle looking at the smiling faces of people who had clearly abandoned the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And it broke my heart. And I did everything I could to uh, work against that step, which is basically saying that if you go into the average church, to the average youth group, and you break everybody down into threes, just pull one because the other two, you can kiss them goodbye. That's basically what it's saying. That that many people are growing up in the church and then falling away and then leaving it behind because either maybe it's too hard or maybe they just like what the world has to offer and they're falling away from Jesus Christ. This is something we need to talk about here as we are a young church. What's the difference between those who fall away from the faith and those who don't stop standing on the grace that is in Jesus Christ? Our text is actually going to give us the answer to that question. If you'll grab your Bible and open it up to John chapter 6 with me, we're going to finish this epic chapter. It's on page 892 if you got one of our Bibles, and I'd love for everybody to follow along just to catch you up. This is our third sermon on this chapter. If you weren't here, or if it's been a few weeks and you don't remember, this started with the feeding of the 5,000, where so many people were coming to hear Jesus teach and to see the miracles that Jesus was doing, that they were like, how are we going to feed all of these people? There's 5,000 men, not even counting the women and children. Well, Jesus prays, and he starts breaking the bread and, and the fish. They just have one meal, basically, and it ends up feeding all the men, women, and children there. In fact, they've got leftovers. And it's such an amazing miracle. The crowd is so excited that that night, the disciples go across the sea on a boat, and Jesus actually walks across the Sea of Galilee on the water and meets up with the disciples. And they go to Capernaum on the other side of the sea, and the crowd is so into it. They're so excited about Jesus that they get on boats and follow him across the lake. Uh, they're looking for another meal. They want to take him and make him king. They are just pumped up on Jesus. And then he begins to speak. And he begins to say that, hey, you're searching for the wrong thing. You just want a free meal. What you really need is me. I am the bread of life. And they start to get a little hesitant. And he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they realize he's claiming to be God. And they're not so sure about that. And then he actually says, you've got to eat my flesh. That's the bread that I'm going to give is my flesh. And you've got to drink my blood. And at this point, a lot of the people are repulsed by this. 
They're not tracking. I mean, this is a metaphor that he's going to give his life, that he's going to die for them. And it's not clear whether they're even understanding that or not, whether they're just rejecting the idea of drinking blood, which it would have been considered unclean, and, or, or whether they're actually seeing what he's talking about, his death, and they don't want a Messiah that dies. Either way, they are not excited about what Jesus is saying. So much that by the end of the chapter, which started out with everybody following Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, well, now we're going to see that many of his disciples don't even want to follow him anymore. Look with me at John chapter 6, verse 60 is where we're going to start, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, heard what he was teaching there in Capernaum, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So here we see an example of people now called disciples who no longer want to follow Jesus. Disciple means learner. It means follower. So if you were with us back in John chapter 2, we saw the people believed, but they didn't have real belief. It was a fake faith that they had. And maybe we could understand that. Okay, well, you say you believe, but then you don't ever do anything about it, so it's not genuine. And we talked about how even the demons believe in Jesus. Well, just believing, no, it's your whole lifestyle. We, We talked about that. But here we have people who seem to be living the lifestyle. I mean, they're following Jesus around. It refers to them in verse 60 and in verse 66 as disciples, people who were in the habit of following Jesus, and it seemed like they would have been legitimate disciples to many, but now they fall away and they no longer follow Christ. I wonder how long it was that they were following Jesus around, realizing and thinking that they were his disciples until this day when they turned away from him. And it says in verse 60, what they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And when it says hard there, it doesn't necessarily mean like hard to understand. It means like this is offensive is what it means. Like there's something about what Jesus is saying, this gospel message that he's giving that rubs me the wrong way, that offends my natural sensibilities, who I am in my sinful nature. I don't like it. And now they don't even say this to Jesus, but Jesus knows they're grumbling in this way. And so he says, do you take offense at this? He brings it up. He asks them. And the Greek word there for take offense at this is skandalizo. You can translate that Greek word, scandal. Are you scandalized by what I'm saying, Jesus says? And when Jesus realizes that this whole conversation about him being the bread of life and him being God and him dying for sin, it's rubbing everybody the wrong way. Does he like stop and play nice and say, hey, here's another free meal for everybody. Can't we all just get along? No, he doesn't back down one bit. Oh, you're scandalized by this? Oh, you're having a hard time with me saying I came from heaven? You're having a hard time with me saying I'm going to die? Well, what are you going to do when you see me ascend to where I was before? question mark. Hey, I I didn't just come here, and I'm not just going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go back to be with the Father in the place that I already came from. The Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, who's going to come riding on the clouds in judgment to reign over the entire world. Oh, you're offended by the fact that I came down from heaven? You're offended by Christmas? Well, how about the whole gospel story, Jesus basically says. 
He's not backing down at all. Oh, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, the the gospel is good news for all people, that there has been born a Savior to come and save us from our sins. But to get the good news, you've got to admit the bad news that you are a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that you would never choose to really save yourself. You would never choose Jesus Christ. No, in your flesh, you would not do that. You would choose yourself, your own way, your sin over Christ. And that's why he says you've got to have the spirit, not just the flesh. He's going after who they are. And he says, some of you do not believe. And then he says, let's see if this is still offensive even in church today. That's why in verse 65, jump down to it. That's why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. You can't choose God unless he chooses you. Is that still offensive in church today? Is that still rubbing people the wrong way? Oh, you're not even good enough to make the choice to come to God. No, he has to choose you. He has to grant you salvation. God's the one who saves us, not the other way around. Now, the idea of eventually Jesus dying on the cross, you have to realize that was just offensive to everybody. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who hangs from a tree. So every Jew would have considered someone who died on a cross cursed by God. The Romans who came up with crucifixion devised it to be the worst possible way to torture someone, then execute them, and they would have had just shame and disgrace would have been the legacy of anyone who died in that kind of crucifixion. So it's offensive. We might see the cross as some beautiful symbol of God's love for us or the religious symbol of the religion of Christianity. However, we might see the cross with its positive connotations. It was all negative to these people. They were offended by it. It was a stumbling block to them. They were scandalized, and Jesus apologized to no one over them being offended. In fact, he said, the reason you're offended is because you don't believe. And it says here, look back at the parentheses in verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning that they would not believe. He even knew who it was that would betray him. So when many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, Jesus wasn't surprised at all. He knew that was going to happen. In fact, that is held out in Scripture as standard operating procedure. There will be many who for a time will appear as disciples of Jesus Christ and then they will fall away. And So we've got to deal with this reality you can't, we can't act like it's just all happy times here at church and isn't just everybody loved by Jesus and doesn't everybody here just love Jesus and let's just do encouraging sermons every time you come through the door. Does that sound nice to anybody else? As the guy preaching the sermons every Sunday, that sounds really nice to me, right? I mean, if you were here last week, it was just all grace, the whole sermon. Anybody, can anybody testify to that? Was anybody here last week? We just did grace the whole time. No conviction, just encouragement. That's all it was. I would love to do that every Sunday. Wouldn't wouldn't you? Wouldn't wouldn't that feel good? Wouldn't that feel nice? But no, then we get to texts like this. And we have to deal with this. And we have to deal with the reality. And if you've gone to church for any length of time, you know that many people start out strong. They take off out of the blocks, running all out for Jesus Christ. It's not about who's at the starting line, who makes it to the finish line. That's really the question that we're here to talk about. So we have to deal that fake is real. Let's get that down for point number one. If you're taking notes, let's just start with this. We need to deal with fake being real. There is a kind of Christian person who seems like a disciple for a season and then eventually turns back and no longer follows Jesus Christ. There is a category of the deceived believer, the fake Christian. Okay? And turn with me to Matthew 13. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew a couple of times here this morning because all the Gospels talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and Matthew is going to give us some interesting uh, perspective. And it's going to show us some parables. We don't really have parables in the Gospel of John, but Matthew shows us some parables that Jesus was teaching at the time that he fed the 5,000 in such a positive, miraculous way. Well, he was saying things like the parable of the sower, or sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the soils, where you've got a guy throwing his seed out, and some of the seed gets immediately swept up by the birds who eat it. And some of the seed gets in this rocky ground, but the roots can't really grow deep, and so it doesn't last very long. And then some of the seed's there in thorny ground, and it starts to grow up, but these thorns grow up, and they choke out the life. And then there's some seed that falls on the good soil. 
and it begins to grow. And Jesus explains that parable. Look at Matthew 13, verse 18 with me. Page 818. It says, hear then the parable of the sower. So he says it to the crowd, and really when he teaches the parable to the crowd, he's hiding the meaning from them because they don't believe in him and they're rejecting him. But he explains it to his disciples. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the gospel. Jesus is the Christ, died for our sins, rose again. When people hear that and does not understand it, well, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That's Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers. They're not even really getting the gospel message. But, verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I want to be a Christian. I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'd like to get baptized here at this church. I'd like to go to a fellowship group. Let's do partners. Sign me up. I'm all in. That's what they seem like. They receive it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures, but only for a while. And then tribulation. It gets hard to be a Christian. And then persecution. Here's opposition from people who don't like the fact that you've given your life to Christ. Here's the world coming after you. And it arises on account of the word and immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, well, this is the one who hears the word. Okay, they look good. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Here's somebody takes off running for Jesus, but their old temptations keep pulling them back to their old life. And all the things that you can get caught up and distracted by in the here and now become more important to them than Jesus Christ. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold. Look at that guy, in another 60, and in another 30. I mean, here's some people sticking with it, bearing fruit, growing up in the faith in Jesus Christ. Many people are going to seem good for a while. And that's why I think 65, Sunday number 65, this is a great time to talk about this, because that's about what it seemed to me. Watched a lot of people go through the doors of the church, in the front door and out the back door. And for a year, man, they would have looked. If you had asked me, hey, is that person genuinely saved? You're a pastor. What do you think? I'm not asking you to judge anybody, but your, your professional opinion. You think that person's really saved? Oh, yeah, so-and-so saved. Look at how their life's changed. Look at all these great things they're doing. Look at how they're being a bold witness. Sure, they're saved. Let's have them give their testimony at church. This is awesome. Look what God's doing. Praise the Lord for my brother and sister. And then eventually you find out they weren't your brother or sister at all. And they go back to their old life. And for a while, it seems so good. Jesus is teaching. He's just flat out saying it. Here's how it's going to work. A lot of people are going to claim the name of Jesus Christ. A lot of people are going to profess faith. And for a while, some of them might even look like they're genuine, and then they're going to fall away. This is the reality that we have to deal with here in the church. This is how Jesus says it's not just what happened to him in John 6, but this is how it's going to be. And it's even worse than this. Go back to John chapter 6. Because you think, okay, well, if we can just put in a good 65 more Sundays, then we'll see who's still here, and then we'll know who's real or not. That'll work out great. Well, we can stack up all the fake Sundays we want on top of each other. Uh, just being here, just sticking around, doesn't all of a sudden mean that it's real faith. In fact, there's going to be some that are going to stick around till the end, and everyone will think that they're real and genuine. And it just talks about that a little bit in verse 64 when it says that Jesus already knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And even though our passage gets to some encouragement when Peter says, we're going to stay standing with you, Jesus, it, our passage ends in a very disturbing statement by Jesus in verse 70 when Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, didn't I choose you to be my 12 disciples? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus chooses Judas to be one of the twelve, but he didn't choose to save him. I mean, let's, let's think about this. 
That on this day, when it got offensive to follow Jesus Christ, and many disciples turned back, and Jesus is like, are you guys going to stick with me? They say, yeah, we'll stick with you. And even then, one of them who's like, we'll stick with you, Jesus, is faking it. I mean, it's amazing to me that the whole time Judas is faking it and nobody knows but Jesus. In fact, we're going to get to the Last Supper when the betrayer is revealed and Judas even ends up going out into the darkness of night to betray Jesus. And it's kind of like the other disciples are like, what's Judas going to do? Like they don't even get it. Like this whole time, even though Jesus is saying that one of them is a devil, they're oblivious to the fact that it's Judas right there among them. They can't even realize it. I mean, one thing to think is, okay, over time, the fake will, will be exposed and the genuine will bear fruit. And so maybe over time, we can figure out who, who is a real uh, Christian and who's got that fake faith. But then it says here, at least with the example of Judas, that no, some people will just stay fake all the way straight till the end. And Jesus even gives a parable about that. Go back to Matthew 13, and you'll see maybe a lesser known parable, but taught at the same time as the parable of the sower, here in Matthew 13, we've got the parable of the weeds. And we've got this good seed bearing, you know, growing up, just sprouting there. The master sends his servants out, and they've got this uh, good seed going here, and it's just weeds growing up. But then these weeds, the, the master of the garden, he's got an enemy who comes in, and he plants all these weeds there uh, among the good seed. And that's the parable, and then we get it explained here. If you jump down to Matthew 13, verse 36, page 819, the parable of the weeds explained. And he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and the disciples came to him. All right, that was interesting. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Real head scratcher. What does that one mean? And he answered, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Here I am out saving souls. And the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, all the souls that Jesus came to save that, that are growing up. But the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Okay, so the devil has his people right there among Jesus' people. And the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels, so we're talking about judgment. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, all of those who are still practicing sin, even those among the supposed people of Jesus, they'll be gathered out and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here's two different parables. One is people are going to go for a while and then they're going to fall away and we'll know that they go out from us because they were not of us. But in this parable, some people are going to be weeds in the garden of the church and they're going to be here all the way until the bitter end when the angels come and separate them and they go to a place and weeping, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like Judas, right there among them. Nobody even could have detected that he was the betrayer, that he was a Satan, and he's there the entire time. So there will be people going to churches like this one, singing the worship songs, going along with all of the motions, but yet because of lawlessness and sin in their lives, they will be separated on the day of judgment. How sobering is that, my friends? That there could be people here right with us until the end and they could be deceived. They are weeds in the garden of God. Now if you want to go to a church where all we're going to do is encourage you and we're just going to assume that you're saved and we're just going to make everybody here feel good, then let me just tell you this should be your last Sunday at this church. okay? Because we're going to tell you what Jesus says in this book. Not just the parts that we all know and love, some of the parts that we don't like. I remember one day I was invited to speak in the main service of a church, and I told the pastor that I wanted to preach on Jesus being the bread of life from John 6, and he looked at me like I was crazy, and he said, are you sure you want to preach that passage? 
as if there were some passages that pastors should avoid when they preach in church, was the implication of what he was saying to me. Surely you don't want to preach on a passage that brings up the fact that no one can come to the Father unless God draws them. Surely you don't want to preach on a passage where many people turn back from following Jesus. That doesn't make for a happy Sunday at church. And he was encouraging me with his comments, uh, even though he didn't outright say it, although he did later on in our relationship, he was encouraging me to avoid preaching that passage of Scripture. And if you want to find people who do that, they are out there and, and they can be found. But Jesus wants to teach that there will be weeds, that there will be people. Not, I'm not talking about people out in the world who know they're not going to heaven. No, they're better off than some of the people who are sitting here in this room this morning thinking they're going to heaven the whole time and then they'll be surprised on the day of judgment. And Jesus is warning us, many, many will find themselves surprised on that day. I just want to plead with you, don't let that be you. That's why we're here to talk about this today. That's why we're here to say to you, examine your faith right now. How do you know that your faith is genuine in Jesus Christ here this morning? Ah, I've heard one of these sermons here before. Yeah, you're going to hear more of these sermons here too. This is what we're here to do, is to make sure that everybody here has a faith that is ready to see Jesus on the day of judgment. Go to the book of Jude with me, particularly as the New Testament develops, the books that are written later, they emphasize more this falling away. And we start to get the picture of, in the book of Acts, there's all of this initial excitement, and there's all these people getting baptized and professing faith. But then what we can see happened in the church over time was that some of those people who started out so strong, they fell away from the faith. And so the later you get in the New Testament, like to the book of Jude, which is right before Revelation, page 1027, if you got one of our Bibles. So when you get to some of the books that are written later, like John wrote his books later, the Gospel of John, 1 John, Revelation, 2 Peter, Jude, when you get to these books written later on in the time of the New Testament, they all start talking about fake Christianity and false teachers who are leading people astray. And look what Jude says. Now Jude, if you don't know who he is, he's not just the guy the Beatles were singing about here. Take a sad song and make it better. Why is Jude so down, right? Jude was the brother of Jesus. That's who he is here in the Bible. And if you come back next week, if you survive this sermon and come back next week, then uh, you're going to see that we get to the brothers of Jesus. And the brothers of Jesus in John 7 do not believe in Jesus as God. Maybe it, you, you can imagine it might have been tough to admit your brother was God. But they did not believe in him during his ministry. Only later did the brothers of Jesus put their faith in Jesus as the Christ and, and worship him. And Jude did that, and then he eventually wrote a letter. And look what he says. It's just one chapter. Start with me in verse 3. He says, Beloved... Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Hey, I wanted to write that really cool letter about how we're all saved. And isn't it awesome that you're saved? And I love being saved. And we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise Jesus for saving us. I wanted to write that letter of encouragement. But I thought it was necessary that the letter I needed to write was we better fight for the faith or we're not even going to have a faith anymore. That's what he says. Verse 4, for certain people, the weeds have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They act like sin isn't that big a deal because after all, there's grace to cover your sin. So if you kind of have some sin in your life, hey, don't beat yourself up about it because Jesus will cover you in his grace. They pervert grace into sensuality and they deny our only master and our Lord Jesus Christ. They come up with this weird kind of Christianity where you can say you're following Jesus without actually doing anything to follow Jesus. You could say, oh, Jesus is my Lord. That doesn't mean I'm going to obey him. Obedience is kind of optional in this Christianity. But of course, he's my Savior. And anybody heard stuff like that going on? People saying things like that that maybe we know? Well, Jude was concerned about it. 
So he wrote his whole letter, basically, even though he would love to talk about just how we share salvation, no, he had to warn us of false teachers and fake Christians, and you can read the whole letter. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible with us on our scripture of the day, if you're taking notes, flip your hand out over, and you'll see we've been trying to read through the New Testament this year, and we're getting towards the end, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. So we'll be reading this tomorrow, actually, on our scripture of the day, and I hope you really dive in to this warning about what the false teachers, the fake Christians look like. And then he says to those of us who are the good soil, he says this in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Not talking about just the scoffers out there in the world, the atheists hating on the church. No, talking about people scoffing inside the church. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people. If they were clearly out there in the world, I wouldn't need to clarify that they're worldly people. I'm talking about church people. Worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but doing something quite different on Saturday night. That's who he's talking about. The void of the Spirit. No, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay right where you are. Remain in Christ, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In fact, don't just persevere yourself. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Let's grab some other people with us as we stay in the love of God. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Go after that person in sin, but don't let yourself be tainted by their sin. And then he ends with these amazing words of encouragement. When we talk about falling away, now to him, now to God who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling away. And he can present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And what joy, what great joy we will have in his presence to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now that's a letter. That's how you do it in one chapter right there. Hey, I wanted to share how awesome it is that we're all saved. But if we don't define what it even means to be saved, there won't even be a faith worth fighting for anymore. So let me fight for the faith. And then let me tell you, who are the real people who really have put your faith in Jesus Christ, whatever you do, don't stop standing for Jesus Christ. Like whatever you do, make sure you don't go the way of apostasy, the way of falling away. Like, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he kind of gives us two different things to think about. One is keep yourself, and while you're at it, grab other people with you. Snatch them out of the fire if you have to. And the other encouraging thought is while you're trying to keep yourself, no, it's really God who is able to keep you. He's really the one that's holding you in his hand and won't let you go. So he goes from exposing the fake to encouraging the genuine believers that even when many people fall away, will you keep standing for Jesus Christ? That really is the question here. Will you keep standing for Jesus Christ? Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, just a few pages over to the left here in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. That was the verse we looked at last week when we talked about grace giving. And maybe some of you guys are like, oh, I wish we could go back to that sermon right now. That was encouraging. I liked it. Well, look at it with me here. 1 Peter chapter 5. And it was encouraging, and it's all true. That God's grace is going to take us from the moment of our salvation, keep us our entire lives, until we experience the future grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the best grace that is yet to come. Here's how it says it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, here's some good news. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Here's what God's going to do. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's going to keep you going. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He gets all the glory. Amen. Then it goes on to this. Don't miss this here at the end. By Silvanus, who we think is Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Peter might have been dictating this through Silas, who's writing it down. And I'm exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I'm telling you what it means to be a Christian. I'm telling you how to live in Christ. This is the true grace of God. And look what he says. Stand firm in it. Even there at the end of his letter. 
He can't leave it alone. He can't just say, hey, what grace we have. No, he has to say. He has to plead with them. He has to remind them one more time. Hey, here's the life of Jesus Christ. Stand in it. Please, whatever you do in this life, don't stop standing for Jesus Christ. And I'm pleading with you, and I'm asking you to take this seriously. If you would consider yourself a Christian here this morning, I'm saying to you, you could fall away from the faith that is in Jesus Christ. I'm sure the weeds thought they were fine the whole time on their way to weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, I think those who have genuinely been saved were not offended by the idea that we're sinners and we need God to save us and we're not too high and mighty to examine ourselves and see if we are in the faith. Anybody want to say amen to that? I hope we're okay with that. Because if we're not careful... Clearly, what the scripture is saying to us, not just through the example of John 6, but now in other clear teaching passages, if we don't keep ourselves, we can all fall away. Falling away from Jesus is the easiest thing to do. All you have to do is nothing. That's all you got to do. Just stop doing the things. Stop reading the Bible. Stop encouraging one another. Just do nothing and just start to drift and see where that takes you. To start to follow your feelings, your emotions, ride the roller coaster of circumstances, and see where you end up. It won't be keeping yourselves in the love of God and standing on the gospel of Jesus. See, Hebrews 2 warns us that if we don't pay closer attention to the gospel, we'll start drifting away. So I'm asking you, are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? What is the confidence that you are not one of these fake people, that there clearly is a category for in the scripture. How do you know you're not one of them? I hope that everybody here is willing to address the issues of our own heart, including myself. Like what, we would, we've never heard of a pastor who fell into sin before? Oh, that's ridiculous. Surely pastors don't fall away from the faith. Those bastions of righteousness, those do-gooders of good. No one's ever heard of a pastor falling into sin. We don't need to worry about that. Small group leaders, you're all good. If you're a small group leader here, you're fine. No small group leaders have ever stumbled. And one of the things I love as the pastor of the church is getting to know the people of the church. And I was having lunch with a man, and we were having a great time getting to know each other, and we were bonding. And he began to tell me his whole, uh, his whole story of basically his Christian life, of going to church. And he just kept telling me, you know, I went to this church. Man, it was exciting. It was great. People were really growing, and I was really being fed. And then my pastor, you know, he, he committed adultery. And so that was kind of a, a rough for a while. And then we got another pastor. Man, we, things got fired up again, and it was great. And then that pastor committed adultery. And I basically said to this guy at lunch, so if I don't commit adultery, I'll be the best pastor that you've ever had. I mean, <laughs> I mean we laugh, but, but that's the sad reality of the situation. So who am I to say that I'm not going to fall into sin? Who are you to say that you're not going to fall into sin? No, the Bible says, hey, guard yourself, keep yourself. It doesn't say act like you're on easy street. No, it says you've got to check yourselves. And this is a timely word for our church even. Because we're right about that age, 65 weeks. That's about how long I give somebody who, who's on the, the thorny ground who's on that rocky soil. Man, people can look like they're running all out for Jesus for a year, year and a half. I've seen some people look like they're in a dead sprint for two years. And then all of a sudden, it falls apart. I mean, we, we're just getting started here at this church. I mean, some of us, maybe it seems like God's done a lot to those of us who were there all the way back in the bowl at Marina High School. Anybody remember that? A lot of people came to our church. They never came back. Can't really say I blame them looking back at the bowl at Marina High School, right? I mean, it, we didn't look like much, like we were going to take over the world for Jesus. But Jesus started to do a work, and he started to build his church. And people started to get excited, and they started inviting other people. And people started giving to the church, and it started to uh, break even financially after only a few weeks, and it felt like God was really doing something. And all of a sudden, this building opened up, and there was the opportunity to get in here. And we said, well, this is going to be a real step of faith, because we can't fill this building one service, much less two services. And, and man, the rent on this building, the lease on this place, how is God going to provide that much money? And we just boldly, by faith, we went for it. And you know what happened? God provided everything that we needed. And some of you were what God provided. 
And you gave generously to the church, and you spread the word, and you invited other people, and we started to unite together for the gospel here in Huntington Beach. And it was exciting. Something was really going on, and now we're about a year old. We've seen some growth. We've seen some excitement. What's the future? I mean, we're at a very interesting place right now. Are are we we just kind of going through the honeymoon stage, and then we're just going to kind of peter out? Like, what, this church can't be one of those churches, oh, they started out strong. Yeah, whatever happened to that church over there? Didn't they have an ice cream truck? What happened to those guys? I used to like that free ice cream. Where did they, where did they go? Hey, what about so-and-so? I heard he was going to Compass. Yeah, I heard he's not going there anymore. Yeah, what happened to him? I don't know. I mean, we could all be a part of the statistic. Our entire church could. If we're not praying for God to protect our church... And this is where we're going to find out, I think, really what we're made of. Not the first year when everything's new and exciting. No, it's after the newness wears off. That's when you find out what you're really all about. Whether you're really committed to it or not. It's your sophomore year, your second year. Like, what's going to happen at this church in 2016? Are we just going to drift into complacency? Or are we going to see God continue to do beyond all that we could ask or think? What are you praying for? What do you think when you look to the future here? of the church. We're taking another step of faith. We've hired another full-time pastor, an associate pastor. Pastor Bill, he's coming January 3rd. We're going to have an installation service. You know, that's another thing that's going to make the uh, budget of this church kind of change when we uh, move a pastor and his family out from Texas and bring them here to Huntington Beach. That's going to affect the bottom line. I wonder who's going to step up and give. Who's going to step up for the next round of bringing in people to come and see who Jesus is. I've got some goals for the year 2016 here at this church that I would like to see us keep moving forward and not shrink back. I'm praying that we will set record attendances in January here at this church. You can pray that with me. I want to see more people come and hear the good word of Jesus Christ. I'm praying that we had 50 baptisms this last year here at this church in this building. I'm praying for 100 baptisms in the year 2016 here at this church. Anybody want to pray that with me? Anybody anybody want to jump on on that? I'm praying that this month, I know some people like to give at the end of the year. We don't talk about giving a lot, but the way church giving, a lot of people give at the end of the year. They want that tax write-off. They see how they did for the year. I'm praying that we'll see so much given here at this church that we'll pay our associate pastor's salary for the whole next year before he even shows up on day one. That's the kind of stuff I'm praying for. And I don't want to shrink back. I don't want to fall away. I want to look back on this and say, man, remember when our church was just beginning back at Sunday 65? And look what God has done since. See, I want to bear a hundredfold. And I hope you do too. I want to stand on the, on the good gospel of Jesus Christ. Go with me to John chapter 6. And I want to stand with Peter. I love what Peter says here. There's some discouragement here maybe about those who fall away. And it's a sad thing to think about. And I thought about sharing stories of people I know who have fallen away, but they just bum me out. It's hard to even talk about it. Um, uh, Yeah. But here we have some encouragement that not everyone fell away that day there in John 6, and not everyone will fall away here at Compass Bible Church. And Jesus, when he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, and what a great answer it is. Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? After I know you, Jesus, after I've believed in you, what else could I do with my life? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that's how you answer. Are you going to fall away? Where else am I going to go? But, but Jesus Christ. Now there's something here that in Peter's response that doesn't really communicate in the English. And it's in verse 69. Look at it with me. It says, we have believed and have come to know. Now the whole point of the gospel of John we know is that we might see the signs. We might believe in Jesus. And then by believing, we might have life in his name. That's the theme we've been following. And so here's Peter saying, we have come to believe, and we have the life, the eternal life, which is to know you, Jesus, and God, the Father who sent you. That's what eternal life is, knowing God. So we have believed, and we have come to know you. Now, when I read that in English, and I hear the word have, I think, okay, at some point in the past, Peter believed, and he came to know Jesus. 
But in the Greek language, they have this tense that's not really past, and it's not really present. It's this perfect tense, okay? And it's really this fascinating thing that we're not really familiar with. It's something that started in the past. It was actually completed in the past, but has ongoing effect into the present, So it happened at a point of time in the past, but then you can still see the reality of it till this very moment right now. That's how he says, we have come to believe, well, there was a point where we came to believe, but ever since that point, we've continued on believing in you. That's what he's saying there. So point number two, let's make sure that your faith is in the perfect Okay, and I'm talking about the perfect tense, if you want to put that in parentheses at the end. And you could write down under that, completed in the past, but continuing in the present. So I'm not saying that anybody's faith is going to be perfect. No, nobody here has perfect faith. We all have temptations and tribulations, and sometimes we stumble into sin, and sometimes we don't pass the test of trials. I understand that nobody here is perfect, but I have a faith that began in the past, and it is a present reality in my life in an ongoing way. Sin is not the practice of my life. Faith is the new practice of my life, and I can say that honestly. That's what it means to be saved in the perfect tense. That I can look at my life and I can see a time in the past where I believed in Jesus, in the gospel, that he is God who died for my sins and rose again. And since then, there's been an ongoing effect, a change in my life. That's what we have here as the present tense. Okay? Now, we see this, that the disciples really are the hero, or Peter, what he says here, is the whole point of this story, the heroic moment, if you will. So you, you might think that this whole feeding of the 5,000 and all the people falling away, that, that's not really the point, I think. In the end, the point here is what Peter says. And this is how we're going to remain in Christ, to stay in Jesus, is his answer. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. Now there was a part that we kind of skipped over. Look at chapter 6. Go back to verse 16. Okay? There was a part when we went through this whole chapter, we kind of just read through it. It kind of just sticks out here. You wonder why it's even here maybe, except for the fact that it's awesome. It's Jesus walks on water. And the disciples, they get into the boat. They're rowing against a strong wind. They can't make it across the sea. And all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the water. He gets in the boat, and boom, they're where they were hoping to go. Now, what's the point of that? If the whole story here is Jesus feeds people, but they just are in it for what they're going to get, and they end up falling away, well, what is the point of this walking on water story that the most of the crowd doesn't even know happened? Go to Matthew 14, and that's where we kind of see the significance of of the walking on water. And it was significant, not to the crowd, but to the disciples. And maybe you've heard the story of Jesus walking on the water before. That they're out there, and there's the wind, and there's the waves, and they see a figure walking on the water. And their response as fishermen, some of them at least have been on this sea many, many times, Their response would be your response when you see somebody walking on water. They freak out is what they do. And they think it's a ghost. And they're they're afraid. And they're not sure what to think. And Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And look at Peter's response here in verse 28. This is Matthew 14, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you commands me to come to you on the water. So here's an example of faith where he thinks, because of Jesus, I can stand where we're not even able to stand, on water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He got his eyes off of Christ, and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And he said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, here's Jesus saying, I can make you stand on water. I can make you stand strong. I can make you stand firm to the end. I can hold on to you. I can keep you standing in my name. Why would you doubt me? And here's the point, verse 32, when they got into the boat, The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. 
See, the crowd, they never got past what was in it for them. What was Jesus going to do in the end? How was it going to benefit them? But the disciples, the true disciples, they got to a place beyond that, a place of worship, where it's no longer about me and my benefit, and how's it going to work for me? No, it's about Jesus, and look who he is, and I want to worship him. I want to give my life to him. I want to honor and glorify him forever. I know who you are. I've seen you. Where else could I go? Nothing could satisfy me like you do, Jesus. Nothing compares to you, Jesus. My hungry and thirsty soul, where else am I going to go besides the bread of life? That's what Peter's saying. Where else could I go but you? You're the one who gives me life. Now go back to what Peter says in John chapter 6 and let's just break it down because there's two things that I think we're going to see that the uh, genuine believer continues to go to in the perfect way. Not just that they went to it in the past, but they went to it in the past and then they also go to it in the present in an ongoing, continual kind of way. And notice the first thing he says here in John 6 uh, Look with me at verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So where is Peter expecting to get life from? The words of Christ. So we got a couple of dashes, a couple of subpoints here under point number two. Make sure your faith is in the perfect. Well, one way in the perfect, we keep practicing faith in the present tense, is we keep on turning to the word. At some point, you became convinced that this is the true word of God. That it is authoritative over your life. That God really inspired men to write this. You believe that in the past. Well, you show that when you continue to turn to the word over and over in the present as your ongoing reality. Yes, I believe the Bible. Not just at one point in the past, but I turn to it every day whether I feel like it or not. I don't know how many mornings you felt like I have where I felt dry, I felt like I was growing weary and doing good works, and I started reading this book, and I felt life coming into my soul again. Anybody else ever had that experience? See, I don't just believe this is the word of life. I, I keep on looking to it as the word of life. It's my constant practice. That's why we encourage everybody to read through the Bible with us. Read through Jude. We're going to get into the Revelation. We're starting the book of Revelation this week. If you've never read that book, you, man, I would love for you to read it with us this month. And we're just going to break it down a chapter at a time, and you're going to see Jesus writing letters to different churches, and he's going to warn many of them about falling away, or he's going to expose a lot of fake faith. It's exactly what we're talking about. Get into the Word. That's one way that we continue. Where else are we going to go? We've got words of eternal life. That's how we stay standing in Christ is through his word. Now, the other thing he says is we've come to know and we've believed who you are. You're the holy one of God. You're the Christ. You are the one way of salvation. I believe you're the way, the truth, and the life. No one's getting to the Father except through you. So let's get that down for our second little dash here. Let's keep on trusting in the one. When the wind comes and the waves rise and the temptations call us back to our old life, we're going to keep on putting our trust in Jesus Christ. We're not going to have little faith. We're not going to doubt. He's going to keep us standing as we keep on trusting in Him. What does it look like to stay standing for Jesus over the course of your life? You keep getting into the Word. You keep turning to Him in deliberate moments of trust, usually through prayer, casting your cares upon Him, giving your worries and anxieties over to Him. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's, let's end with this. 1 Corinthians 15. If you looked back at the 65 Sundays of our church, this would probably be the most quoted, it is the most quoted scripture reference here at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach, and we'll continue to quote it here. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. It tells us the gospel. It defines it for us. And it's doing what we're doing here this morning, reminding everyone of the gospel message and asking everyone to make sure that you're standing not on yourself, not on your flesh, not on your choice of God, not just on some moment that happened in the past, but you're standing right now in the present on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. See, no apology about bringing up the gospel again. In fact, you received it in which you stand. You want to guess what tense that word stand is there? 
The perfect tense. At one point, you decided to make a stand. You decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in the present, you're still standing right there. In which you stand. And by which you are being saved. It doesn't even talk about your salvation as completely done yet because we know the best is yet to come as we put our hope in the future grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the, what does it say there? The word. You don't ever let go of it. You cling to it. The word of eternal life. The gospel of Jesus. Unless you believed in, what does it say there? Unless you believed in. See, there's people who believe in vain. See, see they would answer it. And they would say, oh, I would have, I'm a Christian. And you know what the worst thing that happens is? When people stand up in church and they say, I believe in Jesus. You know what somebody does at church and they mean well. And they have the best of intentions. But they come alongside of them and they say, yeah, you are a Christian. Yeah, I'll affirm that. I see your faith. You are a Christian. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years, and I ask them, well, how do you know that you're saved? They don't say, because I'm holding on to the words of eternal life. They don't say, because I'm grabbing on to the gospel of Jesus. They say, well, so-and-so told me I was. That's what a lot of people say. So-and-so told me I was. And so I believe them. See, by now we're not even believing Jesus. We're just believing some well-intentioned person at church who is trying to encourage us one day. And actually what they did was they added to the deceit in our hearts. And they watered the weeds instead of the good soil. Now if I got up here this morning and I said, well, I can tell you who in this room is not going to heaven, you guys would be like, shocking. He's judging people at this church. How dare he act like he knows who's going to heaven? Well, how dare you act like you know who's going to heaven when you tell someone they are? See, it's a judgment either way. And it's not for me and you to affirm or deny people's salvation. It's for me and you to tell people the words of eternal life. And we let the Holy Spirit give them assurance. Or we let the Holy Spirit convict them. See, we cling to the words. That's what we do. That's where the power is. It's not in our personal assessments of other people. It's not even in our personal assessments of ourselves. What does it matter if you think you're a Christian if the Bible says you're not? You've got to go with what the Bible says. Even over how you feel, over all of your personal experience, you have to see what Scripture says, that there are those who believed in vain. It says there are those who believed to no purpose. Yeah, they came and they started running with us at Compass Bible Church. They even went out with the ice cream truck. They even got their kid in the kids' choir. They sang the Christmas songs, and it was in vain. All of it. Because it wasn't based on faith in Jesus. And sooner or later, fake faith always gets exposed, and every weed will be plucked out of God's garden. Make no mistake. I was thinking about this so much. And so many people that I've known who have fallen away that I actually had a dream about it. This is something that I do sometimes is I dream about our sermons here at the church. And when I'm thinking about them, and uh, I had a dream, and I, I was surprised in the dream when we were at the end. And uh, I was surprised because some of the people who were here with us at this church, who had always been here with us, were not there. But some of us were there. And let me just tell you, there was a joy, there was a glory. This dream, sometimes it goes a dark place of a nightmare as I consider the souls that I have loved who have fallen away from faith in Jesus Christ, who did not say standing. But this time, uh, I was thinking about those who do. And the great joy we will have in the glory of Jesus Christ as we bask in the light, it says we will shine like the stars in the glory of Jesus. We will worship him like we have never worshiped. We will say, truly you are the Son of God. And I hope to see you there on that day. I hope that someday when we're looking through the pictures of this church, I don't know how long we'll be here doing this, but I hope that when we're looking through the pictures of this church, we don't see your face and think, oh, what happened to so-and-so? I wonder where they're at. I hope you're standing on the day of judgment of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I come to you on behalf of everyone here and I ask that you would... Search our hearts, God. That you would show us who we are before you. And if we're deceived, if we're fake in our faith, 
we still are in the practice of lawlessness and sin in our lives. God, I pray that you will be merciful and gracious and pluck those weeds, expose those weeds before the time comes when there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth and the weeds are thrown into the fiery furnace. God, that we ask that you would be gracious and your spirit might convict those who are fake in their faith even here this morning. And God, I pray for those who are standing on the gospel, who are holding to the words of eternal life, both something they've done in the past and what they're continuing to do in the present, God. They're in the perfect tense of faith. They have believed, and they've come to know, and where else would they go but faith in Jesus Christ? God, please encourage them here this morning. Encourage them to keep themselves in your love, knowing that you are able to keep them from falling away. And that you will present them blameless. Someday they will be made perfect in your presence with all of your glory. And what great joy we will have at church on that day. When we worship Jesus in his presence together. And we don't need to stand anymore because the finish line has been crossed. And we're with our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we long for that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.